Uh, My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be preaching today from Acts 2, that passage that was read earlier. So I invite you to turn there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back for you. Um, Feel free to take one of those, take it home with you. Um, But today, as you've probably already noticed, is all about community. It's one of the core values of this church. It's one of our core practices. It's one of the ways we, we live out the gospel together. And so if you're not plugged into this community, we would love for you to do that. One of the reasons why we had the community group leaders up here to pray for them was so that you could get eyes on them, so you could see them. It was one of the ways to get into a community group is to talk to a leader um, and and ask them about their group and see if it would be a good fit for you. Another way is to email me, so I invite you to do that if you're wondering, how do I get into these groups? Um, Let me pray as we turn to God's word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here together will be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. I pray that you will use this word and accompany it with your Holy Spirit to grow your kingdom, to encourage us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, in 2012, um, in an address to her classmates at Yale University, Marina Keegan made this statement. She said, We don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness. But if we did, I could say that that's what I want in life. The opposite of loneliness. She said it's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together, who are on your team, when the check is paid and you stay at the table. The opposite of loneliness. Do you want that? That's what I want. That's what I wanted in 1998, in the fall, when I went to my first day at Crescent High School. Um, I don't know if you can remember your first day of high school. Some of the youth who were in this, like, big transition from middle school or high school, the brave souls that are doing that right now are thinking, yeah, I can remember it. That was last week. So if you can't remember it, go ask one of them what it's like. I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, the transition from Middle school to high school, it was the first year where you didn't sit with your class at the lunchroom, where there was just this wide open jungle that you had to go find a place to sit. So I remember the first day at Crescent High School in the fall of 1998, walking through the lunch line, terrified. My heart rate is, is beating, you know, getting higher and higher and higher. My mouth is getting dry. I go through the line, I get my pizza and french fries, which I had for lunch every day in high school. (laughs) And I walk out and I see this sea of people and I think, where do I belong? Will anyone make room at their table for me? You know, at my high school, it was almost like a scene out of The Breakfast Club. There were like these three scenes. There were the skaters who wore like Jinko jeans and airwalks because it was the 90s. Um, Then there were... And, and actually, you're going to find this hard to believe, but in my school, you could actually gain social capital by being a cowboy. That was one of the social groups at my school. Cowboys wore um, pro-rodeo wranglers and lace-up boots. And even in the ninth grade, they already had a, a faded ring in their back pocket from the Copenhagen. Um, that's what a cowboy looked like. And you see those tables in the lunchroom. And then there were the preps. And you might think, oh yeah, prep is a guy with like a blazer and a knit tie. Not in rural South Carolina. A prep in rural South Carolina is a guy with an American Eagle t-shirt and gel in his hair and a hemp choker. 
So those are the three scenes. <laughs> Cowboys, skaters, preps. Yeah, there's some other, you know, marginalized groups out there. But you're walking through the lunch line. I remember walking through the lunch line thinking, where will I sit? I have no idea where to sit. Where will I belong? Who will make room for me? And I wish I could say that I found this vibrant community that, that accepted me and I found my place. <clears throat> But for me, high school were lonely years. And what I've realized is that the, the so-called real world that high school prepares you for is not that much different. It's not that different, is it? You walk into a new job, maybe you're walking into a new church today wondering, are they going to make room for me? Is there a place here that I can belong? Can I find community here? Most of us, I think, want what Marina Keegan wanted. We want the opposite of loneliness. And so for the sake of our conversation today, let's just call it community, because that's what we're about today. And, and today we're going to look at this passage in Acts 2, where the writer Luke gives us a picture of the community of the early church and what it looked like for them and some of the marks of the church that should be Um, some of the marks of our church as well. We're going to look at um, three points. And I always say, if you're a note taker, you know, here are your three points. And, and a friend of mine said, well, note taking is the Presbyterian amen. So I think it may be head nodding, but you're welcome to do either one. Um, the three points are the, the case for community, the cost of community, and the cause of community. <clears throat> so we look at the case for community, Luke gives it to us in, these passage, uh, in this passage here. I just want to read these verses again. Verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See, here's the context of this passage. This passage follows one of the first sermons in the entire New Testament that the apostles gave after the ministry of Jesus. And so Peter preaches this sermon on the day of Pentecost, and there are people there from all over the world speaking all different languages, and the apostles began to speak in tongues where people heard the gospel in their native language. And at the end of the sermon, he says, in this really climactic conclusion, says, repent and believe, and they did. And all these thousands of people started worshiping together, and they were baptized, and they were drawn into this community. <clears throat> this is a diverse community people speaking all different languages, people from all over the world, now they're called to this common family, this common community called the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And it says here that they were devoted, they devoted themselves not just to sound doctrine, not just to good theology, not just to spiritual formation and, and, and their prayer lives, They didn't devote themselves just to the sacraments. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. And when you're devoted to something, that means that you've made intentional efforts to cultivate it. It doesn't sound casual and organic, does it? It sounds formal and programmed. Now, the, um, the Greek word in this passage for fellowship is going to be familiar to a lot of you because this Greek word has been used to brand like everything from youth groups to coffee shops. It's this word koinonia. Um, it was actually, I think last year, like the, the winner of the spelling bee. It was like the winning word, koinonia. It's this Greek word that's translated here as fellowship. 
Now, sorry, I'm going to grab some water, pull a Marco Rubio here. <laughs> so, this word koinonia is translated fellowship. Now, I grew up Baptist, so when I hear fellowship, I think of a fellowship hall, which I still love that to this day, that, that churches, when they're able to and they have the means to, can actually even devote part of their architecture to to one of the marks of the church, to fellowship. But for me, when I hear the word fellowship, I think of maybe polite conversation, potlucks and ice cream socials. And, and that might be part of it. You know, sometimes I, th- I think we, have a, we give small talk a bad rap. We say, no, no one likes small talk. I mean, that's, that's work, right? To go to a, to a social event and have to do small talk with people, we want to get to something deeper. But the people who study relationships and friendships, sociologists and anthropologists, they actually have a different word for small talk. They call it treasure hunting. Because they said in small talk, that's how you find your points of connection with people. So if you think of it as treasure hunting, it's, it's not just polite conversation. It's I'm looking for places to connect with other people. And you start hearing things, you start saying things like, oh, you're... Um, a fan of tennis too. Or, oh, you studied, you were an English major too. Or, oh, you had an alcoholic father too. Oh, we have some points of connection. It's treasure hunting. And now you start to bond at a deeper level. But I think Luke had something more in mind when he used that word koinonia. It's not just fellowship. It's not just small talk. It's a deeper bond, and the reason why we know that is because Paul uses it later on in the New Testament to talk about our partnership in the gospel, our koinonia in the gospel. It's a deeper bond. It means means communion. It's like this camaraderie, this teamwork that we have together. We have a common goal. We're on the same team. We're working towards the same, moving towards the same place, and they were devoted to it. To me, it kind of sounds like the opposite of loneliness. Koinonia is the opposite of loneliness. They were devoted to it the same way they were devoted to orthodoxy and prayer and the sacraments. And God calls us to follow their example wherever we go, anywhere in the world, looking for believers and devoting ourselves to the fellowship. But this is not a new concept. This is, you know, in Acts 2 is not the first place we see fellowship. See, we can actually go all the way back to the beginning. The very beginning of the Bible, we see God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect koinonia. Perfect love. Perfect harmony. Perfect community. The opposite of loneliness. And our God exists in three persons in relationship with one another. And then he creates humanity in his own image. And he says to humanity, it's not good for them to be alone. And we typically think that as, of that as talking about marriage, but he's actually talking about community building. He's talking about building cities. We need, we need marriage to populate the cities so that we can have community, so that humanity will not be alone. You know, humans are pack animals. We're created to be pack animals. And actually, you, know, you think of the term lone wolves. You know what I realized this week? Wolves are pack animals too. Um, So I looked up, you know, what is a lone wolf? A lone wolf is a wolf that's been banished from the pack. 
And because of that, they even have to change their diet and they become dangerous and aggressive. And that's when we talk about someone as a lone wolf, as a bad thing. See, God created humanity in his image to live in community, to build cities, to build communities, to multiply and fill the earth so that the entire earth is full of the image of God. He created us to be pack animals. And yet, when the fall happened, when humanity rebelled, what do we see coming into the world? We see blaming and hiding. We see envy and jealousy. Adam and Eve, one of their sons, murdered the other. We see violence. We see racism and bigotry and betrayal and divorce. We see community broken. And yet, God still chooses to redeem and to be at work in this broken world. And he does it relationally. He does it in communities. As we've already heard, he reconciles us to himself, restores our relationship, brings us at peace with God, and then gives us the ministry of reconciliation to go and to love our neighbor and to be reconciled to our neighbor. That's why every page of the Bible is about communities. God is at work within communities. He makes covenants with communities. He redeems communities. He establishes communities. He calls us to one another and gives us that command, love God and love your neighbor. He's always at work in communities. He even calls Abraham his friend. Abraham, friend of God. And then when Jesus comes, God in the flesh, what is Jesus called? but the friend of sinners. See, Abraham is a friend of God and Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that's good news for us, lonely, broken people after the fall. Paul in the New Testament tells us to, be, to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another. How do we do that? Do we do that on Sunday morning in a worship service? No, we do that in community. We do that by gathering, by knowing one another in community. He even says um, to the Corinthians, he says, make room in your hearts for us. And I love that phrase, you know? When you make room in your hearts for somebody, you're saying, I'm giving them my time and my attention. So there's a case for community in these passages that um, calls us to community. Now, you might look at your world and say, but there's an equally strong case against community because of all the things that I just mentioned from the fall. Community is risky. It's vulnerable. I don't know if I want to be in community. I've been hurt by community. I've been abused by community. I don't know if I want to be in it. And and what we find is that there is actually a cost to community. There is a risk to community. Um, And we see the cost of community here in this passage. We see it both in implicit and explicit ways. Explicitly, it tells us in verse, um, verse 45, it tells us that they were selling their possessions. See, that's how they funded their community. That's how they funded this, this fellowship, this koinonia that they were devoted to, by selling things. It was a cost to them. Um, but it also tells us that, that they celebrated their meals in verse 46 with glad and generous hearts. And the adjective form of koinonia in the Greek actually it means generous. And so we see even between the lines here that community costs something. And, and, the, and the truth is that community at every level is costly. It's never free. Remember who this passage is talking about. People from diverse backgrounds, diverse languages, people who looked and talked differently. 
Um, maybe they didn't have much in common. And are we supposed to believe that they just got baptized and all of a sudden, like, community just erupted everywhere and they all just decided to show up at the same person's house at the same time and this, like, pre-cooked meal, like, descended from the heavens? And they're like, oh, bread, and they, like, broke it and ate it? No, like, if, if you see between the lines, like, th- this is an idealistic passage. Luke doesn't tell us exactly how they did it. He doesn't give us the recipe for the bread. But what we do know is that even if you take that simplest of form, breaking bread with glad and generous hearts together, that breaking bread was costly. That community had to be programmed. Someone had to go to the market and buy some flour and prepare it and knead it and go knock on doors and say, hey, why don't you come over at 7 o'clock on Tuesday night? And they had to get other people together and they had to spread the word and they had to build a fire. They had to bake the bread. All of that was programming. All of that was costly because community is always costly. They did it so that they could make room for one another, so that they could bring other people together and be devoted to the fellowship. It was costly because they thought, it, I, can, I can lose this thing of value to gain something that we believe is, is actually of greater worth. They were generous as they ate. Now, I lived um, in South America years ago, and some people are more gifted in community. I don't think that, that anything I've said so far is talking about extroverts. I don't think when, when God said, Let it, it's not good for man to be alone, I don't think he meant like 35% of the population. I think he meant all of us. But that being said, personality does um, shape how we engage in community. Some people um, are a little naturally you know, better at programming community, whether they're extroverts or introverts. Some cultures actually are better at it. And I would say that in, in my experience in traveling and living in Latin America, Latin Americans have taught me everything I know about community. One of the things that I loved about living there is I would show up at someone's house uninvited, I would knock on the door, and without fail, someone would show up and they'd say, hola, pasa, 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 come on in, come on in, come on in. And then they would like, like almost like snap their fingers and say, primo. And there was, primo means cousin. And there was inevitably like, in the other room, like off stage, like a 10-year-old boy who comes like running up and they're like, primo, primo, corre, corre, a la bodega, go, run to the bodega. They would give him a few coins. Run to the bodega, buy bread, butter, instant coffee, and condensed milk. <laughs> and Primo would like run away and you'd hear this like shuffling of feet. And he'd be like, pasa, pasa, and they'd like put on some, hot, some water to boil. And then three minutes later, the water's boiling, Primo comes running back in, a bag of bread, he's got all the supplies, and they make what they call cafecito y pancito, a little bread and a little coffee. And they're like, now we can talk. Now we can break bread. Now we can fellowship. And you're probably thinking, where do we get these primos? Um, <laughs> because that would make it a lot easier. <laughs> um, and you may also be thinking, no one has ever knocked on my door um, for this to happen. Because in, in our day and age, we, we are more fragmented and isolated, and we have to do a little more programming and planning to even get to that point. But those coins in their hand, 
as they pass them off to Prima, that was the cost of my presence. It cost them something for me to be there. And it's hard to receive that, right? But community is always costly. Breaking bread always costs money and time and effort. We have this picnic coming up tonight, and um, I'm really excited about it, but Jordan and Joyce put together a six-page document outlining all the things that have to happen for this picnic to happen tonight. Um, community takes effort and programming. Um, that's one of the reasons why we devote ourselves to community groups. Because we know if we just relied on our own abilities to program, it would slip through the cracks, and you would slip through the cracks. So our community groups are concrete ways that we devote ourselves to the fellowship. It's a way that we program our fellowship because community is always costly. It always requires generosity. These leaders and hosts have to prepare and vacuum their carpet and get their house ready and put in the time and effort to make room for us to come and be a part of that community. Um, community is, is costly, but it may not always be money. Maybe time or attention. See, one of the costs of community is that it's, it's a little bit messier in reality than we like it to be. Again, these pages sound very I- idealist. You know, this is a great ideal, but in reality, community means people who are awkward. I'm going to have to talk to someone who's awkward, who has bad breath. Maybe they talk too much in my group. Maybe they don't talk enough. You know, I've got to talk to people that I don't think I have much, com- much in common with. And it costs us our, our time and our attention. Someone has said that attention is one of the most generous things we can give in our culture. You know, David Brooks uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about the blindness of social wealth. Um, most experts believe that about one in four in, of us in our culture, in American culture today, one in four people have no one to share good and bad news with. They have no one. They don't know anyone they'd call if they got diagnosed with cancer. They don't know anyone to call to share news with. And many more of us, um, beyond that number, are, are living what, what we would call lonely lives. And he says that there are the social haves and the social have-nots. There are those who are socially affluent, who have a lot of community, and then there are those who are the socially poor, who don't. And in the blindness of social wealth, he says that those who have are blind to those who have not. And so some of us here are socially poor. We don't have many connections. Some of us have a lot of connections. We think, how can I fit all of these you know, groups and, and events into my busy schedule? I've got to think about, you know, how can I think about these other people? See, I think when God calls us to, to community, he calls us to generosity. And when he calls us to generosity, he calls us to give both out of our poverty and out of our wealth. So what that means for us is that some of us are going to have to take the first step. Some of us are going to have to initiate inviting someone over or inviting someone out to lunch or just an, out for a walk if you don't have the means um, to pay for food. Others of us are, are socially wealthy, meaning we don't have a lot of time. We're socially wealthy, but we're time poor. It means we're going to have to make some time in our schedules to live in community. 
if we don't, what happens is that we end up making community with the people who, who we like, the people who give us something, the people who are easy to talk to, the people who look like us. But the community that God calls us to in these passages is an uncommon community. It's not just our friends. It's the people that we didn't choose. It's part of the way God works. He brings these people together that, that don't always get together. And that's why community is messy for us as Christians. Sometimes it's even harder in the church because we're building friendships and community with people we otherwise would not spend time with. And that's a beautiful thing, but if we're honest, it's also a difficult thing. If they look like us and they talk like us and we have the same background, we have instant chemistry. We don't need a lot of the small talk. But when we're different, we got to discover those points of connection. But you know, I think there's a deeper cost to community that keeps us away, and it's the emotional cost. See, many of us, bruised and broken by the fall, have given up. We've said, I don't, the more time I spend with people, the more data I give them to reject me. See, I think our fear of rejection is another reason why we don't engage in community. And for us, maybe it costs us that risk of getting involved, knowing that I'm going to show up and I'm going to make room, not just in my schedule, but I'm going to make room in my heart for these other people. And I'm going to be a little more vulnerable and I'm going to allow them to be a little more, more vulnerable. And I know that I'm risking a lot by doing that and it costs me to do that. And so there's a, an emotional cost as well. What if they don't like me? What if I talk too much? What if I'm the one with the bad breath? What if I'm the one that's awkward? There's a cost there, but what if you're on the other side? Maybe you're thinking, you know, will these other people be what I need? Will they meet my needs? What if I don't have anything in common with them? Maybe you're thinking, I've got the vision of the perfect community in my mind, just none of them go to this church, unfortunately. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, my like, dream team of community would, would be amazing, um, I just haven't found them yet. And so maybe the cost to you is the cost of your dream community. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, put it this way. He said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Maybe it'll cost you your dream community to find a real community. And a real community is and it's awkward, and it's costly. So how did they do it? They didn't even share their common native tongue, I've already said numerous times. Um, how did all these people come together and, and have this opposite of loneliness, this koinonia together? I, I, were they not like us? Were they not busy and insecure? and overcommitted, and isolated. No, I think they probably shared a lot of same, same experiences that we do, but I think the way they were able to do it is because they saw and understood the cause. They saw that their community actually had a, a purpose higher than them. We see it in verse 41 and verse 47, the beginning and the end of this passage. In verse 41, it says that, that there were about 3,000 people baptized. And then in verse 47, it says they, 
They had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, their community, their devotion to the fellowship was one of the things God used to expand his kingdom, to reach out to new people. And so in their community, they were making room for people who did not even believe yet, for people who were on the outside of the church. They were making room even for them, and God was converting more and more people every day through their devotion to the fellowship. And yes, their devotion to the teaching and the, and the prayers and the breaking of bread, all those things together is what God was using to grow and expand his kingdom. A friend of mine wrote a book on hospitality, and he, I love the title. He says, he called it The Simplest Way to Change the World. Another pastor, Tim Keller, said it this way. He said, friendship is the only thing I know that can change a life. Many of you are in this room now. Many of you believe in Jesus because someone made room for you. A friend brought you to a church service or a youth camp or a community group or just took you out to lunch. 89% of Christians are Christians because someone invited them. Someone made room for them. Jesus says, they will know you by what? By your love. Was that on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m.? Yes, but, but they had something else that they were going out, off of. They knew of the love that, that we had for one another because they saw us meeting together in our homes and breaking bread with glad and generous hearts. They saw us going to events and celebrating birthday parties and, and taking meals to, to new children. They saw all these things. They saw these concrete acts of love. And that's how they knew there's something, there's something supernatural there. See, it takes something supernatural to transcend all of those natural dividing walls that we've put up. In fact, in the second century, a critic of Christianity said it this way. He says, they have um, a common table but no common bed. And that was a radical thing in that culture because the bed was shared far more freely than the table. And yet Christians had a common table, and that was compelling to a world that was divided and broken by the fall. And I think it's compelling to our world now that it is isolated and fragmented and lonely. You know, half of our city is unmarried. Um, 25% of our city um, did not, 25% of our city was foreign born. Many of us are transient. We did not, uh, many of us did not grow up in Santa Barbara. And we know what it feels like to move to a new city. Our city is a transient place where many people are lonely. We are a city of hedges, right? We build hedges around our yards. We don't have front porches or stoops that we sit on. Our culture and our city is a lonely place. And I don't think loneliness, by the way, just means if you're not married, then you must be lonely. I'm not saying that at all, because I know that both you can find great friendship and camaraderie um, as a single person, and I know that you can also be lonely in marriage. In fact, um, uh, one person wrote about the loneliness of motherhood. Uh, her name's Bumi Ladadan, and she, she talked about the village that she wished she had. She said, I miss that village of mothers that I've never had. The, ones we, the one we traded for homes that, despite being a stone's throw away, feel miles apart from each other. The one we traded for locked front doors, blinking devices, and afternoons alone on the floor playing one-on-one -on -one with our little ones. 
What gives me hope is that I look at you from across the park with your own child in tow, playing in her corner of the sandbox, and I can tell from your curious glance and shy smile that you miss it too. Maybe we'll have it again, but for today I'll invite you and your little one over for tea and maybe bread. I miss the village. Do you miss the village? I think our city misses the village. I think, this, I think community is one of the places where, where our good calling and the world's great need actually intersect. I think if we take it together, the greatest mission field today in our country is loneliness. Because we are broken, fragmented people who have felt the hurt and the abuse of community, and we wonder, will I ever find it again? But I think there's a greater cause. I don't think the, the early church in, was engaged and devoted to community simply because their culture needed it. I don't think it was simply just one program of evangelism to get people saved. I think that was the result of their community. I think that was a common cause that they shared as they were teammates working side by side for the gospel. But I don't think it was just we engage in community and we love our neighbor because we're supposed to. See, I think the ultimate cause of community is the gospel. It's because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have invited us into community. God has welcomed us. God has made room for us at the table. Um, we are the ones with the bad breath. We are the socially awkward ones. We're the ones that talk too much, the ones who talk too little. We're the ones that show up and eat the food and run and leave the dishes. And yet, he loves us. And yet, he invites us in. And he gives us his attention. And Christ came to be with us, a friend of sinners. And he went to the cross, lonely, largely alone and forsaken and abandoned. Lonely on the cross. But with his arms wide open to invite us in, to welcome us into fellowship with him. And if you know and believe that, then Jesus says, you're not just my servant, you are my friend. I call you my friend. And I think that's the ultimate cause for our community. It's that we have been called friends of God. And because of that, we can overcome barriers. We can overcome busy schedules. We can make the cost. We can count the cost and we can reach out in love and welcome to one another. He listens to us. He loves us. And so that is our cause because Jesus went to the cross and suffered on our behalf and invites us into community. We can live that way um, for others on their behalf, for the life of the world. And if you remember the, um, the quote that I, I began with, the opposite of loneliness from Marina Keegan, one of the things that makes that phrase, I think, so, uh, stick with me so much is that she goes on in this, this address to talk about, we're so young, we're so young, we're 22 years old, we have so much time. And then she died in a car accident. And so I know that these words, the opposite of loneliness, have some urgency to them. Because her life is a picture of, of that community that never actually happened. That desire that never actually happened for her. And so for us, we have not just death and resurrection, not just death, 
but resurrection as well that invites us into community because through the resurrection of Jesus, he creates a new city, a new people, a new creation that will someday be ours through faith. So I don't know about you, but that's what I want, the opposite of loneliness. As um, maybe we will be people who say to others what Jesus has said to us, um, and I'll use the words of Mr. Rogers' theme song. He says, I've always wanted a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. May we be people who have found ourselves at Christ's table and because of that make room at our table for others. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that in spite of being sinful, broken people who've rebelled against you, who were your enemies, you have made us your children. You've called us your friends. You've invited us into community. You've brought us to your table. Every week you call us here and you feed us and you send us out. So Lord, I pray that you empower us through the Holy Spirit to do that for your sake on behalf of this world. In the name of Jesus, amen.